1: Good afternoon listeners. This is the Dogs program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon to defend and to promote public education. And that's education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's open to all children. It's public in access. It should be publicly built and owned and organized and controlled. We shouldn't be having private-public partnerships in our public education sector, although we all know that that is now happening. It should also be the only one that is publicly funded because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. That, of course, is assuming that our politicians in our so-called democracy are prepared to provide a public education first class on our taxpayers' money for every child in this country. And we now know, of course, that they are very ambiguous about all of this. Australia is not the only country that has this ambiguity. And uh, this this afternoon, I'd like to refer you to uh, our American cousins, if you like, the Voice of Reason, the Journal of the Americans for Religious Liberty, which has come to us this week. The uh, the new version of this, the new issue, which is number three for 2016, and you can find this on our website at www.adogs.info. And we have a press release, 669, which is entitled Voucher Watch, Ed Durr from the United States of America. Vouchers and charters, they actually hurt public education. And we'll be talking a bit later today about how the new baby boomers have hit are hitting our schools in Australia. And the question is, who is going to educate them? Only a public system can educate these children. But unfortunately, around the world, the big hedge funds are looking to make profits out of private education. And the way they do it is set up charter schools, and promote vouchers for religious schools. Now, the normally pro-voucher Brookings Institution in America has been having second thoughts about the suitability of vouchers for improving student academic performance. Mark Dynarski wrote from that group on May the 26 on negative effects of vouchers for the Brookings Evidence Speaks series. He said, Recent research on statewide voucher programs in Louisiana and Indiana has found that public school students that received vouchers to attend private schools subsequently scored lower on reading and math tests compared to similar students that remained in public schools. The magnitudes of the negative impacts were large, and these studies used rigorous research designs that allow for strong causal conclusions. He added that our historical understanding of the superior performance of private schools is no longer accurate. (laughs) It was never accurate. Uh, Listeners, private schools can never be better than public schools because uh, they depend upon the public schools for their curricula and for um, their teacher training and for many, many other things as well. They are always following the public schools. National data of educational assessment from 1990 to 2011 in America found that public schools improved relative to private schools. And Dynarski concluded, a case to use taxpayer funds to send children of low-income parents to private schools is based on an expectation that the outcome will be positive. These recent findings point in the other direction. Uh, As well as that, uh, Senator Ron Johnson in Wisconsin, who's in a tight race for re-election, is trying to prevent the Department of Justice from investigating private voucher schools for alleged violations of the Americans with Disabilities um, Act. Johnson inserted prohibitory language into an appropriations bill that would prohibit justice from using federal dollars to enforce Title II at private schools that receive public funds. Well, listeners, we all know that this is what private schools is about. They are about discrimination. They are about selecting children, and that means discrimination against children if you're going to separate out sheep from goats. Now, Title II in the Americans with Disabilities Act is a federal provision, and it covers fair access to buildings for disabled children and requires interpretation programs for hearing-impaired students. The ACLU and Disability Rights Wisconsin filed a federal civil rights complaint in 2011 alleging that Milwaukee's vouchers programs were denying admission to children with disabilities. And the investigation continued for four years until the Obama administration quietly closed the probe in late 2015 without taking further action, according to Emma Brown, who writes about education for the Washington Post. Brown added on June the 28th, 2016, The amendments, the latest turn in a long-running fight over whether private schools receiving voucher funds should be held to the same non-discrimination standards under ADA as public schools. Because vouchers, of course, are state aid. And the Americans are waking up that uh, these schools discriminate against all kinds of children, including children with disabilities, as we have found in Australia. More than half the states in the nation now have some kind of publicly funded program to pay for students' private school tuition, programs that proponents hail as offering an escape from so-called failing public schools, and the critics say are starving public schools of needed resources. So the Americans are finding out with their voucher systems that... uh, Australian vouchers, which in fact are state aid to private schools that we have, uh, they don't work. They discriminate against children. In 2013, says Brown, the officials told Wisconsin's State Education Department that the state's decision to pay for children's private school education does not place those children beyond the reach of the federal laws governing non-discrimination. And they also told state officials to make several changes to the program, including improving outreach to families of students uh, with disabilities and establishing a new procedure for filing complaints about disability-based discrimination. The Thursday, May the 26th, dispatch editorial about charter schools purpose forgotten was spot on. The 2014 Stanford University study found that nearly 40% of charter schools in America nationwide are worse than regular public schools, while fewer than 20% are any better. Uh, listeners, this is a little bit like what has happened over in Western Australia with uh, Christopher Pine's so-called independent public schools, which are a version of the privatisation program for public schools. Um, they are very much like charter schools. It's the same for voucher-aided private schools. Studies in Milwaukee, Washington, D.C. and elsewhere show that they offer no improvement over any public school. The University of Illinois Education Professors Chris and Sarah Lubienski spell this out in their 2014 book, The Public School Advantage, Why Public Schools Always Outperform Private Schools. In short, Vouchers and charters, and we have versions of them here in Australia, dear listeners, are part of a pernicious campaign to undermine and privatise the public schools that serve 90% of American children. Here in Australia, they serve more than two-thirds of Australian children. Further, vouchers tend to fragment the student population along religious, ethnic, class and other lines. In 28 state referendum elections, voters have rejected diversion of public funds to private schools by two to one. So I thought you'd like to know what is happening over in America before we go to Australia, because what is happening in Australia is very interesting. Back in in, uh, in, after the Second World War, let's say, in the 50s, the men came home and went into the bedroom. As well as that... Uh, that was the Australian men, there are a lot of other people came from overseas. Uh, They were displaced people and we welcomed them because we thought it would be good for our economy. And those people had children. And the children were in the labour wards uh, within a few years and then within a few years after that they hit the schools. And in 1960, 1961, Australia was in a crisis. They didn't have enough schools. So they built them. And they got all the children into those schools and they gave them, on the whole, a crash-hot public education. Every child in this country got a good public education. Unfortunately, they also started at the end of the 60s to divert public money to private schools, uh, mainly to Roman Catholic schools. Well... I suggest, dear listeners, that in 2016, we are in a similar position. It's not just in the inner city of Melbourne where the Greens are, and I think we have to give them credit here, the Green member, Ellen Sandal, is taking up the case of the uh, City Schools for City Kids uh, program, or shall we say, Rebellion Uh, because the parents in the inner city of Melbourne, as well as in the outblocks, are suddenly waking up that there isn't a local public school for their children. They don't have that, quote, choice anymore. The people who have promoted choice have, in fact, undermined the choice of a good public education for every, every child in this country. So the governments, the state governments, who are supposed to be in charge of education, And the federal government that is supposed to channel money into uh, the state treasuries for education have a crisis on their hands. We are aware of it in Melbourne. We are aware of it in Victoria. There's a need for at least 200 odd schools here because the children who were in the labour wards five years ago are now looking to attend school and preschool too. But A similar situation is also occurring in New South Wales. I'd like to thank our member who sent us this information uh, on the email, but you may like to listen to what the uh, Fairfax media put on their website.
2: The number of school children running through the gates of Sydney schools is set to move from a trickle into a flood over the next decade. New data from the Department of Planning and the Department of Education combined by Fairfax Media, shows that more children than ever will take their seats in classrooms from Waverley to Camden. In the middle of it all, the city of Sydney will see a 41% growth in school-aged children over the next decade. No part of metropolitan Sydney will be untouched by the upswing in enrolments, which tends to go in cycles. Two decades ago, poor planning from the Coalition Griner government saw up to eight schools in the northern Sydney region close, Fast forward to today and the already overcrowded public schools of northern Sydney around Willoughby have continued to grow without relent, up 17% since 2012. For parents in the area, little relief is in sight after delays in building a new public school at Lindfield and a projected growth rate of more than 12% for the region. In the east, Waverley has seen an explosion in student numbers, surging 22% in the past four years, the highest figure in the state. Five schools in the area now serve more than 2,500 students, compared with fewer than 1,900 four years ago. In total, there are now more than 790,000 students in public schools across New South Wales. The Australian Council for Educational Research says we need to build 385 classrooms every year for the next decade. Over the last four years, the government has spent $4 billion to provide over 900 new permanent classrooms but it seems the surge in investment might not be quite enough to keep up with demand. The biggest test will come when the government's plethora of multi-billion dollar deals come on stream within the next decade. 16,000 residences will be built around the Bays precinct, while 62,000 people look set to move into Green Square. We haven't seen a school that can cope with that kind of demand yet.
3: Yes, thank you very much. The Dogs, the Defence of Government Schools, would actually like to thank Fairfax Media for that contribution to our programme, whether they know about it or not. But certainly we attribute it to them because that, that little piece comes from the um, the Sydney Morning Herald website and indeed the Age website um, and is attached to an article by James Robinson which is published on the 1st of September. Uh, James, has, James is a, is, seems to be an old-fashioned journalist. He, do, he has done a bit of digging on what's going on in the education system in New South Wales in terms of numbers, as Gene uh, was quite rightly saying, because he's found out that more than one-third of New South Wales schools are full. And at 180 uh, schools in New South Wales are stretched. Actually, they're over full. They're beyond capacity. And that's what the New South Wales Parliamentary Inquiry has been told. Now, documents which have been obtained under freedom of information laws and released at Budget Estimates meeting on on Monday last show that many of the state schools are already uh, over full, just as the department braces for another major surge in enrolments in the coming decade. Now, compared to the number of teachers to classrooms, the measure used by the department to measure a school's capacity. More than 800 public schools across New South Wales are operating at 100% capacity or more. Well, I mean, I'm sure people are going about the inefficiency of the state school system. Um, That's the kind of of statistic that tells you that the state school system is being run at 100% efficiency, and indeed effectively. So for all those people who think that privatising is the solution to the problem, well, I'll tell you what, the state school system in New South Wales is being incredibly efficient. Now, that number represents 37% of the state's schools. Some 180 schools, or more than 8% um, of the schools in New South Wales, are actually now stretched beyond their limits, the department figures show. And this includes several schools in inner cities, such as the Orange Grove Public School, where teachers... <laughs> outnumber spaces for them to teach by more than 60%. At the Bondi Public School, it's 40%. So that is you've got a number of teachers and you've got the number of classrooms for them to work in and there's 60% more teachers than there are spaces for them to actually teach in. Now, the Shadow Education Minister in New South Wales and former school principal, uh, Jihad Dibb, um says teachers in high schools were having to use spaces such as metalwork shop rooms to teach English. It's a huge amount of pressure on schools and teachers are being forced to find spaces outside of their classrooms. He said that students at overcapacity schools in regional areas were most affected by overcrowding and had to travel longer distances to alternative schools. But in a budget estimates hearing on Monday, the Education Minister, Adrian Piccoli, denied that school children were cl- crammed like battery hens into schools. But Fairfax Media recently revealed that New South Wales got schools are facing a widening budgetary crisis, driven by this overcrowding. On its own estimates, the department needs an additional $11 billion in funding by 2031. Now, as Jean was quite rightly referring to, we are now in the middle of the beginning of a projected boom in school-age public school pupils, of around fifteen hundred kids, or sorry, fifteen thousand kids a year, and it's three times higher than the department's previous assumption of five thousand a year, and that's just in New South Wales. Now, in total, the New South Wales school system will be required to cope with an extra. 225,000 students by 2031, 165,000 of which will be in the public school system. Now isn't that interesting? I'm sure the government, in terms of wanting to privatise things, would like all those new students to go into private schools, but that's not actually going to happen. And I suggest those estimates are somewhat optimistic in terms of those people enrolling in private schools in the future in Australia, considering the current economic climate. But Mr. Piccoli the education minister in new south wales said the government was taking measures to address the issues in the report and several things had happened since that report came down including the state budget but he did decline to say how much extra money would be needed to f- to be found in coming state budgets to meet the huge growth in enrolments mr pocolli said overcrowded schools used demountable classes stopped taking out of area and international students and referred students to nearby schools and I'm sure Mr McCauley would say preferably private ones. He said that when the coalition government came to power, enrolments had flatlined but was now facing an unprecedented growth. Now, isn't it fascinating? He seems surprised by all of this, but um, you know, this isn't surprising to anyone on the ground. It isn't actually surprising to most people um, when it comes to understanding what's actually happening in Australia at the moment. But never fear, because the former Australian Managing Director, Mark Scott, um, he's going to take over as Secretary of the State's Education Department um, a couple of days ago. He's, he's already done that, so he's going to solve all the problems, apparently. Um, and no, he's not. No, he's not. There are, in fact, more students than there are schools to put them in. And if they think the private sector is going to take up the slack, then they've got another thing coming. Because, um, after we'll have a little music, I'm going to describe... One of the fundamental problems in Australian education today, and it is a fundamental problem, it's a political problem, it's an economic problem, and indeed it's a problem to do with the separation of religion from the state. And it has to do with, I would say, criminally, criminally negligent business practices which are being at the moment undertaken by both federal and state politicians when it comes to the education of the children of our nation. But before we get stuck into that, here's a little of Carl Philip Emanuel Bach. Um, lovely fellow, and this is what he wrote. <laughs> Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR, 855 on the AM dial, but if you're listening you already know that, um, or indeed the WWWs if you're getting us on the World Wide Web as part of our podcast series through the 3CR website. Um, we are the defenders of government schools, but we take little breaks from time to time to have a listen to people like Carl Philipp Emanuel Bach, that was his Symphony for Strings, that was the Allegra Comolto um, in B-flat major played by the Tasmanian Symphony Orchestra chamber players, and that was Geoffrey Lancaster, plonking and plucking away on the harpsichord in the background. But to return to the major questions of what I actually consider to be gross negligence, um, Simon Birmingham, uh, the Federal Education Minister, gave a speech a couple of weeks ago in which he said, we're putting all this money into education, And we've just found out that it's not doing any good because the NAPLAN results from Australia have plateaued. Well, plateaued is in fact a funny word because the rest of the world is going ahead gangbusters in terms of improving its educational outcomes. Not the entire rest of the world, but the vast majority, because the vast majority of the people on the planet think that education is in fact a very important thing, Um, you know, for people and stuff. Uh, however, Simon Birmingham um, is worried about the, the, the metaphorical colours of the deck chairs because he thinks he's spending more money and he's not getting value for it. And he made four basic claims in this speech. And these four basic claims have been analysed by Alan Reed, who is a research professor at the School of Education at the University of South Australia. Um, and he did this analysis on an interesting website called The Conversation. Um, he did it oh, a couple of days ago. And I think it's worth actually sharing his ideas about what our Federal Education Minister is saying and what the Federal Education Minister actually means. Because when the 2016 NAPLAN results were released a couple of weeks ago, uh, Simon Birmingham actually says a few things which have attracted more than just a little bit of attention. He said, firstly, that there had been a 23% increase in federal education funding over the last three years and that this money that apparently the federal government has pumped into the education system hasn't got any results, because NAPLAN have results have plateaued. He also concluded that there should be less concern about the amount of funding going to schools and more focus on ensuring that existing money is spent on evidence-based measures. Now... That claim has picked up a number of quarters and repeated so often that it's taken on the aura, according to Alan Reed, of a universal truth. Well, it is a universal truth for those people who wish to believe it, for the free market theologists, and for those people who are interested in actively attacking and, indeed, potentially destroying public education. However, Alan Reed has a few points to make about these claims. He's going to take each of the claims in turn. Now, the first claim that the Federal Education Minister... This is the person, by the way, that's responsible for the education of the children of Australia. He made the claim that education funding has increased significantly over the past few years. Well, let's just look at that, um, because that claim's actually questionable.
1: Well, it's certainly increased to the wealthy schools and to the Roman Catholic education system. I don't know about the public system. It's been at a lesser percentage, that's for sure.
3: Well... I mean, where the increase in funding has gone is, in fact, a question that needs addressing. But let's just look at whether there's been an increase in funding. Mm. Now, that, in fact, itself is in question because federal funding has increased as a consequence of the government picking up the first four years of the Gonski Plan. However, when the budget figures are adjusted for a rise in wage costs and enrolments, the increase is less than half of 23% claimed by the federal government. Now, this is well short sure of the funding that the Gonski Review estimated is needed to actually improve educational funding for students, which is what Birmingham's saying hasn't happened. But in any event, it's difficult to understand why the Minister chose only federal funding to make his point. Sure, that is the money over which he has control, but if education standards are linked with funding, the only figure that can really be used is one that reflects the total amount schools receive. And this means combining state and federal government funding. Now, as Trevor Kobold at Save Our Schools has demonstrably said, and in fact demonstrated, that when it is done for the period of 2009 to 2013, which was under the previous Labor government, and then adjusted for inflation and rises in enrolments, increases in funding were very modest indeed. Now, during that five-year period, total government funding for education rose by... 1% 1% across Australia. Available data suggest not much has changed since. Now, it's hard to escape the conclusion that the federal government is searching for excuses to justify its stated attention of not funding the remaining 70% of the Gonski plan. So, on the, on the very first claim that um, he's increased funding by 23%, that is demonstrably, not just questionable, but it's just demonstrably not true... Now, why is the person who's responsible for the education of the children of the nation um, saying things that aren't true? Mm -hmm. Well, before we actually get to that question, let's go to the second claim that the Federal Education Minister, Simon Birmingham, made. That is that NAPLAN results have plateaued. Now, the claim uh, that results are plateauing means that if you compare NAPLAN results for the same year level, say Year 7, over a number of years, scores have stayed much the same. This is accurate, but it can be misleading. Statisticians and educational researchers have shown there can be a 10% margin of error for each individual score in NAPLAN, and this is compounded when results are used to make comparisons for the same year level over time. The social composition of cohorts of students at a particular level can vary markedly from year to year, and this will have an impact on test results and thus overall scores over time. Now, given this uncertainty, it is important to take care when interpreting results. It's far more illuminating to drill down into how many groups of students, in particular year levels, are faring in any one year. When that happens, the stark and consistent reality that a larger percentage of students from educationally disadvantaged backgrounds are consistently below the minimum standard than from advantaged backgrounds. Such an insight suggests a very different conclusion about desirable levels of education funding. Now, I'm going to be returning to this theme, but Alan Reid says that it matters. It matters significantly in Australia if you, as a human being, are born into a family that doesn't have much money, as opposed to you as a human being being born into a family that does have a lot of money. In terms of your educational outcomes, that is a very important factor. and I'm going to return to that because I find that assumption abhorrent. I don't think it should matter in a civilised country the income of your parents when it comes to educational outcomes, and if it does mean anything, then that is a problem in itself that must be addressed principally by the Federal Minister for Education, Simon Birmingham. So rather than assume that that's just a true thing and we have to deal with it, that is something that needs to be fought. That is something that we should rail against. That is something that we as Australians should be not just disappointed but angry about.
1: Children's future should not be predetermined. Uh, Their their future should not be written before they are given Mm. an opportunity. Absolutely. That's outrageous.
3: I mean, if you're talking about the argument between nature and nurture, and if you consider (laughs) education that which is the nurture component of a child's ability to, 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 to be a productive citizen yeah, apart to from... navigate a, this apparatus to, to, called society. Well, it's just, just society in general and interpersonal relationships and actually being able to do things in the 21st century. is a mm. f- You know, Having that sense of empowerment, that I have the skills to succeed in the world today, and the apparent wealth of my parents is just assumed to be um, one of the most important factors, um, that's abhorrent. I mean, there are civilised countries in the world that if you were to say that, um, and if, if you were to say that was true in, in, in other countries, they go, oh, but that's terrible. We should do something.
1: It's feudal. Here, it is.
3: here in Australia, we say, oh, that's terrible, and then just stop. Mm. Oh, no, they say, that's terrible, but what can you do? As opposed to places like Finland where they go, that's terrible, let's do something. Mm. Um, well, let's go to the third claim. The third claim that uh, Simon Birmingham made when he was talking about sort of trying to get causation between how much money he's supposed to be spending and educational outcomes, is that despite spending more money, educational outcomes have not improved. Now, this involves correlation of the previous two claims and concluding that extra funding won't help raise educational standards. Now, there's actually a number of problems with this logic. First, it ignores the fundamental rule of statistics. That is, correlation is not causation. If the NAPLAN results have plateaued, surely such an outcome could be linked to any number of variables, including an an explanation that the results could have been much worse if the money had not been spent. Second, even if a direct correlation can be made, the fact that the NAPLAN is an annual standardised test that focuses solely on literacy and numeracy. It cannot tell us about all the other outcomes from the rich array of learning that occurs in schools to which resources are also directed. This means that if you want to correlate funding with NAPLAN results, you would have to somehow isolate the money that was provided to supporting teaching and learning in literacy and numeracy rather than all the other things that money is spent on in schools. The minister's claim did not do that. And also, thirdly, and I think most importantly, the claim assumes that money was distributed on the basis of need. And it wasn't. Large sums of state and particularly federal money are going to the most affluent, well resourced private schools, thus diminishing the amount going to educationally disadvantaged schools. So some in Birmingham is doing the exact opposite a railing against the dying of the light, he's actually accelerating the process by not putting into into any of his calculations the fact that the majority of federal money goes to private schools, which are fundamentally and functionally shown to have been educating students from educationally advantaged backgrounds.
1: Ah, but it's in the Coalition's DNA, the private schools. They somehow believe that these are the answers to all our... Education problems, whereas Mm. in fact they are the cause of so much of our educational problems in Australia.
3: Indeed. Now the fourth claim, we're coming to the end of this now, and the fourth claim we need to focus on is the evidence-based measures that will get results for students, according to Simon Birmingham. Well, it sounds like a reasonable thing to say. Well, the Minister says we need to focus on evidence about best practice rather than on funding amounts. The problem is that strategies suggested by the research evidence, such as professional learning programs and smaller class sizes for targeted groups of students, require, you get it, extra funding. If policymakers are looking for evidence based measures to improve educational outcomes, they need to look no further than the research evidence that highlights the importance of strategies targeted at where they are needed most. There are large disparities in educational outcomes between students from educationally advantaged and disadvantaged backgrounds and I'm just going to say this because every time I say it it shocks me more not less because by year 9 in Australia the differences between educational ability in just just literacy and numeracy at year 9 between an advantaged and a disadvantaged students can be as much as 5 years 5 years and there are many research studies pointing to the fact that a significant proportion of the variation in school outcomes is explained by a substantial difference in resources between schools. There is shown to be strong connection between increased expenditure and improved educational outcomes. So keep keeping on giving money to private schools, because it's in the Coalition's DNA, is not going to solve your problem. There is no evidence, Mr Birmingham, that it does. So... Evidence-based measures, Mr Birmingham, should lead you to stop funding private schools and take that money and give it to the education in to improve their educational results and then everyone will be happy. But there's also plenty of evidence about how to enhance the quality of education. These include strategies such as supporting teachers with ongoing professional development, providing additional support staff including quality intervention programs for students at risk, and shaping curriculum to suit identified needs on a case-by-case, school-by-school basis. All of these require, you get it, Mr Birmingham, funding. And they also take more than a few years to bear fruit. So you can't just throw the money, do a test a year later and say, oh, that's stuffed up, forget about it. You've got to take the time. Now, if the goal is to improve educational outcomes, it will make more sense to increase funding and direct the money to programs that support the most educationally disadvantaged schools and the students who are struggling most. Now, you know, that's kind of like an obvious thing to say, but unfortunately that's not what our Federal Education Minister, Mr Birmingham, is saying. So if that's the problem, if Mr Birmingham has identified the problem but come up with bogus solutions, um, well, I think he's right about identifying the problem. And if Alan Reid has identified the same problems but come up with different, more effective solutions, then I still think... That that's worth listening to. However, and this I find disturbing, um, I'm going to outline one of the proposed solutions to the problem that is put forward by an organisation called Teach for Australia, and I'll be outlining what it is that they suggest should be done to solve this problem. Um, I find what they're saying actually quite—I don't know—disturbing, uh, but I'll, I'll be sharing that with you after after these messages.
2: Common Ground Festival is back this November featuring Frank Yammer, Dallas Frasca, Emily Warramura, the Deans plus loads more.
0: Complimenting the music makers on stage will be free workshops from the Group Work Institute, a social change unconference, mouth-watering food and nature in abundance.
2: It's about working together to make the world a better place and having one heck of a good time along the way.
0: So visit common for your tickets, a 3CR supporter. IPAN is inviting you to attend its anti-war conference and join the Close Pine Gap protests from the 26th of September to the 2nd of October in Alice Springs. Pine Gap facilitates US war activities, international espionage and their killer drone program. It's time to stop the drift to war and free Australia from US military bases. For more information on the IPAN conference go to ipan.org.au and for protest details see closepinegap.org. IPAN is a 3CR supporter.
3: Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and indeed podcast. Look I'm about to tell you something that I find offensive, okay? and we live in a world where it's not really good to be offensive to people, so I'm going to give you a trigger warning on this one before we start, because I'm going to outline what it is that the problem and the solution match is according to a group called Teach for Australia. Now, when I read this um, just a little while ago, it reminded me, I was having a chat with Jean before, it reminded me of the way the problems of education were dealt with. Um, in the middle of the 19th century in Dickensian London. In Dickensian London, there was a sort of great sort of moral panic about all the poor little urchins wandering around and how they needed to be given an education and all that sort of thing. And, the, and of course, the solution was for people to go around doing charitable acts because in the 19th century, many people viewed education of the disadvantaged, education of poor people, to be an act of charity
1: that was after they got the children out of the mines, remember?
3: Yeah. They got, they got them out they of the got, mines.
1: At least they got, got them out of the mines, but then they thought that, well, yes, these poor children, perhaps we should do something with them. Perhaps we might teach them to read and write since they're actually going to vote for us eventually.
3: Indeed. Now, Teacher Australia has been going for a while. Um, and it is perceived and actually often hailed by many uh, politicians as a solution to the problem of educational disadvantage in Australia. So what is it? Well, before I tell you what it is, um, I'll just, just just read out... I mean, I'm not making this up. I'll just read out what it is that they say the problem with education is in Australia. Now, in many ways, I agree with what they're saying. I mean, this, this identifying by Teach for Australia of what the problem is in education in Victoria could actually come from a dog's press release. It's really interesting because they say the education system in Australia is one of the least equitable in the developed world. And they say that kids from low-income households are almost three years behind school than those from high-income households. Well, actually, that's old data. It's now getting up to five years, which means that Australia is one of the most least equitable countries in the developed world when it comes to education.
1: And the new political economists would say that this is very bad for the economy. Mm
3: -hmm.
4: So
1: uh, some of our betters are starting to realise that perhaps something should be done about it, as they did in the 19th century.
3: Indeed, Gonski himself, when he did the report, said, we better do something about this or we're going to have a very large number of very poorly educated and disaffected people and in the court in, 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 the, in the court of the Sun King in France, this led to a revolution. So we, the ruling classes and the courtiers that are attached to them, better do something or we'll be in trouble. But let's go back to Teach for Australia. They go on to say, and I think this is punchy stuff, if a child is born in the wrong postcode, lives in a low-income household, or has parents who didn't finish high school, he or she is less likely to have access to quality education and do well at school. Well... Yes, yes. I mean, they're they're, they're putting the finger on it straight there. They also go on to say a child's opportunities in life, including levels of health, further education, employment and income, diminish because of this educational disadvantage. Ultimately, this impacts his or her sense of self-worth, and our families and our communities and our country all suffer the repercussions of this fundamental injustice. And they go on to say... And again, this could come from a, a dog's press release. One in two Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders, who are now adults, didn't finish school. That's half. People living in the country are almost half as likely to have a degree as they're living in the city. 75% of young people in the juvenile justice system dropped out of school before year 10. I think anyone who works on GB can tell you that. And kids from high-income households are twice as likely to go to university as those from low-income households. So they've identified the problem. And I think they've identified it quite accurately. Now, this does not cut across the work that incredibly skilled and committed state school teachers are doing in state schools today. But they're outlining what's going on and how it is that we are now in this problem. And they're identifying what the problem is. So... Teacher Australia, what do they think are the solution to this fundamental problem? Is it to focus federal government funding and resources on those students with disadvantage to make sure that what they're saying is no longer true in the next generation? Is this something that is so abhorrent that it requires a national approach, both from government and the community as a whole? Or do they say something else? Now, what they're saying is they believe that to achieve a solution to this problem, inspirational leaders leaders are needed in schools, communities, business and government. Okay, fine. Now, they say there's three core elements to the approach for Teach for Australia. They're going to recruit outstanding graduates and professionals from all academic disciplines who commit to teaching in an educationally disadvantaged school for at least two years. So they're not actually making them into teachers, and and we'll come to that in a minute. So the the solution is not to get these outstanding graduates and give them education degrees. Oh, no. They're going to support them through an award-winning leadership development program to become exceptional teachers who lead their students to dramatic and enduring academic outcomes and personal growth. And they're going to grow a movement of individuals who progress to positions of leadership in education and beyond and, in their own way, They will continue to influence change within education so that our shared and ambitious vision comes ever closer to reality. So what they're saying is they're going to get outstanding graduates, outstanding graduates, um, and they're going to give them six weeks training and they're going to throw them into a rough school and they're going to pay them. And it's all going to be because these um, outstanding graduates are functionally being told that they will be doing charity work. For two years. For two years. After two years, their contract's up and they don't have to do it anymore. They're treating the education of children of Australia like you would an overseas relief program in Eritrea.
1: Well, that's because, unfortunately, in some areas of Australia, our children are living in third world conditions. Um, But it's not good enough. We don't want charity for these children. We mm. want these children to have their rights to a first class public education.
3: Okay, so let's just look at the mechanics of this. The first thing they do is they give them six weeks, six weeks of training to become a fully qualified secondary teacher, and then they throw them into a classroom with a highly experienced mentor, inverted commas. Mm-hmm. This in-school mentor will provide you with day-to-day support, observation and feedback, assist you with planning and assess your classroom delivery on an ongoing basis. So, that mentor, (laughs) yeah, yeah, they're going to love that. You will also be supported in the professional leadership development via rigorous and ongoing coaching grounded in the Teach for Australia Leadership Development Framework. Who's going to pay
4: for all this?
3: Uh, Well, guess what? A charity? No, it's the taxpayers taxpayers. The taxpayers are paying for this charitable approach to the teaching of children in Australia. But for those people doing it, there are benefits. You're going to earn yourself a Master's of Teaching by the end of the program. So by the end of the two years, you actually get to be the teacher. But at the end of the, te- at the, end of the program, you don't have to be a teacher. And I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the statistics of what's happening in Teach for Australia is based upon what happened with Teach for America, exactly the same program in a different country. After two years, I'll tell you, they do not continue to be teachers. Oh, no. no. They wander off and do what it was that highly experienced and excellent graduates would normally do, which was go off and work in the field for which they're trained, and they will achieve the salary and benefits in that organisation, and they'll just leave teaching. Well, the
1: money would be dead enough. It's dead
3: money. Hmm. So let's talk about the salary and benefits for these charitable people, being ever so nice, being exceptional graduates, um, being ever so nice. Let's talk about what, what benefits they get. These charitable, excellent graduates are employed and paid by their relevant government departments as, as much money as a teacher would be, <laughs> even though they're not actually teachers. And, of course, they say their first priority would be to place you where you can have the biggest impact on educational disadvantaged. This may be in metropolitan, regional, or remote setting, so we encourage you to be flexible and open with your placement preferences. Well, I tell you in HR speak what that means is Please, 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 please go to rough schools. Don't go to nice ones. <laughs> please, please, please go to rough schools, not to nice ones. Because what they're saying here is that they have had experience with these charitable people saying, "Oh yes, I do want to help. I do want to help all the struggling people, but I don't want to go and move to Hamilton or Mildura or Orbost <laughs> or work with Aboriginal children in, in remote settings because that doesn't suit my lifestyle, being a highly excellent graduate."
1: Very few of them will want to get out of their comfort zone. In fact, these children might teach them more than they ever teach the children.
3: Well, yes, that's often the case when I was a teacher. I learned so much from the kids. Yeah, me um,
1: too. Well, back to the HR
3: speaker, this thing, because I think it's fascinating. There's a whole paragraph and paragraph about please, 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 because <laughs> they're saying, um, if you do go and teach in a remote place, this will give you the best chance of being placed. And you, after you've been selected for the program, and they go, there's a matching process and we'll work with you to find the best fit for your skills and talents. At present, Teacher Australia places associates in schools in the ACT, the Northern Territory, Victoria, Western Australia, but the network is indeed growing. Now, they say... And this also has a benefit in terms of your future employment outside of the teaching sector because it furthers your leadership schools and it's a global movement so it can facilitate your international travel if that's what you want to do. And they say, well, what are you going to teach? You can teach in your subject area and directly relate what you've studied through your degrees in accordance with the subject's requirements. Yeah, well, we all know that that's not going to happen because so many people get thrown into schools and teaching outside their subject areas because there's no money to actually employ proper specialist teachers. hasn't been for a generation or two now. Mm. Yeah, I just get really disturbed when in Australia education is viewed in any way as a charitable act. It's not. It really isn't. When people from various churches say, oh, we're very nice to educate, know. it's a charitable act, it, fulf- it fulfils our... No, it's not. No, it hasn't been since the Second World War. Education of the people, the children of the nation, is in fact a responsibility that we collectively share, whether we have children or not, because it's for our mutual benefit. It's really, really simple. And the, more, the, the largest number of kids that get the best education is not just of benefit to those children, it's of benefit to me personally. As someone very famous said, I can't remember who it was, Says, look, I'm happy to pay for the education of everyone's child so I'm not surrounded by stupid people in my old age. It's really simple. <laughs> it's not a charitable act. in Teach for Australia, the rhetoric, I, I find, I don't know, I, I find it offensive, which is why I said um, trigger warning before <laughs> we started this whole thing. But you're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And we just have a few minutes left, just a few minutes left, for Jane to fill you again in on what's going on overseas.
1: Yes, uh, but before I do, uh, thank you very much to our member who uh, brought in the age uh, from Thursday, September the 1st, Faith-Based Hiring Faces Crackdown. The Greens in Victoria are bringing in uh, legislation to prevent private religious schools discriminating against children on the basis of their religion, their marital status, their gender identity or their sexuality, or their sex. Uh, So uh, they, of course, are jumping up and down and talking about religious freedom. But for their information, they, in the Dog's case, made sure that religious freedom was uh, out of our Constitution. Section 116 was read down and out by the majority judges, not by Lionel Murphy, in 1981. Uh, Meanwhile, back to America, because we started with America. I'd like to take you back to America to talk about not Mr. Trump and Hillary Clinton, but their running mates. Uh, Their Governor Mike Spence, uh, Pence, I'm sorry, who is the running mate for Trump is in favour of vouchers and charter schools. Uh, he is an ex-Catholic who is going for what he thinks is the evangelical vote, whereas Senator Tim Kaine is in fact um, Jesuit trained but is married to a lady and he himself went to public schools and he and his wife are great uh, supporters of public education. As the Virginia governor, he also championed early childhood education and increased funding for public preschools. And his wife, Anne Holton, is the daughter of the state's first modern era Republican governor who integrated public schools in the early 1960s. That is, the integration of the African children into uh, the schools uh, in the 60s. So the Holton children attended these integrated schools, public schools, as did the three now grown-up children of Tim and Anne. And she herself, Anne Holton, was named Virginia State Education Secretary. So Hillary Clinton is going for, um, yes, the religious vote, but the religious people who promote public education. And believe you me, there are a lot of them around Australia too. Uh, because if you go to a state school in Australia, your belief system is respected. Indeed. And that's how it should be.
3: Indeed it is. You've been listening to the Dogs Programme here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and broadcast on the WWW's podcast through the 3CR website. If you'd like to find out more about us, of course, you can contact us at our website. Which is www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info, I N F O. But until next week, when we'll be discussing more of what's going on in the education milieu of Australia, um, it's bye for now.
5: I dream. I'm standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I'm dead Says Joe, but i dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you'll find joy. Joe, you're ten years dead.